Hello and welcome to Sparkle Tech, episode number 35 in the series of musings and mutterings from my favorite city, San Francisco. So, how to introduce the early life of Yerba Buena? The epic sweep of Mexico's revolution and California's annexation to the United States for all intents and purposes passed the town by, and it was little more than a backwater up until 1848 or so. Monterey, Sonoma, and the great ranchos of the by now native-born Spanish Californios were where much of the moving and shaking went on, with Yerba Buena developing slowly and more or less in the background. Perhaps what I'll do is wander through the years between the building of that first sailcloth shanty and the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in the Sacramento Valley, which changed the city forever. I hope a series of stories and individual sketches will just give you a feeling for Yerba Buena during those few unusual years. But before we get to that, it strikes me that an overview of the general political situation during this period might be in order. After Mexico finally broke away from Spain in 1821, many things changed, including the abolition of slavery and the encouragement of once-forbidden mercantile trading along the California coast. This consisted mainly of the barter of hides and tallow produced by the semi-feudal California rancho system for manufactured goods from Europe and Asia. American sea traders dominated this arena, a period well described by Richard Henry Dana's famous literary reminiscence, Two Years Before the Mast, and immigration of American and European settlers to the New Mexican Republic began to increase. At this time, the population of the whole state, excluding Native Americans, was only 4,000 people. All ships were required to pay customs duties at the capital of Monterey before being allowed to work the rest of the coast, which encouraged a certain amount of bending of the rules in other ports, Yerba Buena included. The political situation in Mexican California, as is common in young republics, was complete chaos. In the years from 1831 to 36, for example, there were 11 different governors, and the native-born Californios began to grow understandably impatient with the general confusion and incompetence of Mexican rule. Juan Bautista Alvarado, president of the legislature, seized control of the capital in Monterey in 1836 and deported the standing government, proclaiming California a free and sovereign state. The Mexican government ingeniously resolved this problem by offering Alvarado the governorship, which he held for almost 10 years. This didn't end the instability, of course. To the east, the newly independent Republic of Texas had been annexed by the United States, and Jacksonian Democrats, including President Polk, were heard loudly pounding the drum of manifest destiny and westward expansion. The U.S. was champing at the bit to acquire the territories of Alta California and Nuevo Mexico, and though they were negotiating to buy, the threat of force was ever-present, tensions amplified by a dispute over the Texas southern border. The Mexican government became increasingly concerned about American intentions, and military reinforcements were sent up from Mexico. This prompted a new round of intra-California political infighting and confusion, the deleterious effect of which is nicely captured by the case of Commodore Jones. Jones was an impetuous young American naval officer, who upon hearing a rumor that war had already broken out between the two countries, sailed confidently into Monterey Bay one fine day in 1842 and demanded that the Californios surrender their capital city and the state. 
which they did without a shot being fired. The Stars and Stripes were raised, and California was proclaimed to be under the benevolent protection of the United States of America. When Commodore Jones learned of his mistake, that there was no war, he blushed, I'm sure, and sailed away with all the dignity he could muster. Four years later, though, the United States would provoke Mexico into war over Texas and invade California for real. During this period of American settlement and eventual seizure of the state, Governor Alvarado's uncle, Don Mariano Vallejo, was Comandante of the Presidio of San Francisco, as well as being the foremost and richest man in California. Contemporary journalist Bayard Taylor describes him as a military commandant during the governorship of Alvarado. He exercised almost supreme sway over the country. He is a man of tall and commanding presence. His head is large, forehead high and ample, and eyes dark, with a grave, dignified expression. He is better acquainted with our institutions and laws than any other native Californian. Mariano spoke English very well and was suspected of being favorably inclined to foreigners. As war between the United States and Mexico became imminent, it was clear that even if California did declare independence, again, it wouldn't be independent for long, for European powers such as England and Russia were waiting opportunistically in the wings. In the debates over the fate of the state held in March of 46, at the instigation of the U.S. Consul, Vallejo spoke in favor of independence from Mexico and annexation by the United States. When the war was over and the annexation complete, he was the only native Californio to serve in the new state's Senate. After war was actually declared in April of 1846, the arrival of loose cannon and all-around troublemaker Captain John Fremont in the state provoked a tiny group of half-baked American settlers to capture the northern town of Sonoma, take General Vallejo prisoner, and declare California an independent republic. The Bear Flag Republic, so named because of the unfortunately pig-like bear painted on their banner with blackberry juice, as it turns out, lasted for only a month. When Commodore John Sloat captured Monterey, this time for good, in July of that year, Fremont and the short-lived Republic joined the war on the United States side. The war formally ended on February 2, 1848, as all schoolchildren know, with the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. The United States agreed to pay Mexico $15 million, and Mexico agreed to transfer to the U.S. the future states of California, Nevada, and Utah, most of Arizona and New Mexico, parts of Colorado and Wyoming, half a million square miles of land, comprising half the territory of Mexico. For the expansionist Americans, the war was a tremendous victory, but Mexico's reaction was summed up by then-President Porfirio Diaz in these famous words, Poor Mexico so far from God, and so close to the United States. Okay, got all that? This was the atmosphere during Yerba Buena's birth and early years of growth, a sleepy little place in which much of this political turmoil went almost unnoticed. Before we go much farther, I'd like to read a description of the bay as it appeared in 1835 from Richard Henry Dana's aforementioned reminiscence. We sailed down this magnificent bay with a light wind, the tide, which was running out, carrying us at the rate of four or five knots. It was a fine day, the first of entire sunshine we had had for more than a month. We passed directly under the high cliff on which the Presidio is built, and stood into the middle of the bay, 
from whence we could see small bays, making up into the interior on every side, large and beautifully wooded islands, and the mouths of several small rivers. If California ever becomes a prosperous country, this bay will be the center of its prosperity. The abundance of wood and water, the extreme fertility of its shores, the excellence of its climate, which is as near to being perfect as any in the world, and its facilities for navigation, affording the best anchoring grounds in the whole western coast of America, all fit it for a place of great importance. There's a cool little map from 1847 up on the Sparkledack website, pilfered from sfgenealogy.com, thank you very much, on which many of the locations discussed today are marked, as well as a, a beautifully illustrated view from the bay that also functions as a map. If you like, log on and follow along. When we last spoke on this subject, the master mariner William Richardson had built Yerba Buena's very first structure for his wife and family at the edge of Candelaria Miramonte's potato patch on the western shore of the bay, a fact also noted by Dana. Richardson soon replaced this sailcloth shanty with a large adobe, featuring a parlor, generous bedrooms, and a sitting and dining room with thick walls and massive shutters to keep out the wind and rain. He was joined shortly by Jacob Lease, who, having scented opportunity in the New Mexican Republic, moved up from the south and installed the first general store, in partnership with Monterey's Nathan Spear and William Hinckley, married Comandante Vallejo's beautiful daughter Rosalia, and produced Yerba Buena's first child, Rosalie. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the completion of Lease's store and house coincided with the American Independence Day, and having learned something of the ways of the Californios, he ran up the Mexican flag as well as the Stars and Stripes and threw a three-day party, the kind of event which would become typical in the small town. His partner Captain Hinckley sailed up from Monterey and brought an orchestra along for good measure. American and European settlers shared festivities with the Californios and their families for days and nights at a time, drinking together, dancing together, and building relationships with rancheros from all over Northern California. The same sort of fiesta occurred on Mexican Independence Day, and frankly, as often as an excuse could be found. As with Richardson and Lise, you can pretty much assume that every European male that I mention will end up marrying the daughter of a Californio, whether soldier or ranchero, many of them acquiring Catholicism, land, and Mexican citizenship into the bargain, when in Rome. The connections between the ranchos, the Presidio, and Yerba Buena were on the whole strong and healthy, with some in the small community even backing Mexico when the war finally broke out. There were, of course, other non-European Mexican citizens living in the area that encompasses San Francisco today. Doña Juana Briones, for example, whose mother and grandparents came to California from New Spain with the De Anza expedition, became not only the first independent female settler, but the first resident of North Beach. She lived in the Presidio until finally leaving her drunk and abusive soldier husband and built an adobe house with her children at what is now the intersection of Filbert and Powell Streets. Juana ran a small dairy and vegetable farm on what's now Washington Square Park, commemorated there by a brass plaque on a bench. She supplied milk and vegetables to ship's crews, as well as serving as nurse and midwife to the growing community. Without formal training, she treated smallpox and scurvy patients, 
delivered babies, and set broken jaws, using remedies from local herbs, and is reputed to have sheltered runaway sailors in those early years, even when rewards for their return were offered. She must have been living right, because she lived to be over a hundred years old. José de Jesús Noé, in another example, came to San Francisco in 1834. He was one of the rancheros, owned the San Miguel Rancho that covered today's Twin Peaks and Sutro Heights areas, was alcalde for a brief time, and gave his name to the modern San Francisco neighborhood of Noe Valley. He's buried, as so many of these characters are, in the cemetery of the Mission Dolores. I haven't been down there recently, at least not since I started looking at this pre-San Francisco history, so maybe I'll see you there in the next couple of weeks, poking around the gravestones and contemplating the lives and contributions of these early pioneers. Both Richardson's and Lisa's lots, which were adjoining, fronted on the Calle de la Fundación, a narrow and muddy road leading from Yerba Buena to the Presidio. At the end of 1835, these two buildings were the only structures standing. Well, that's actually not quite true. Lease built a small wharf at the spot known as Clark's Point, the first on the shoreline, and the Indian crew of Richardson's schooner put up a Temescal, a sweat house, about where Sacramento Street now crosses Leidesdorf. There was no Sacramento Street then, of course, but in its place was a freshwater stream running down into a lagoon at the edge of the bay. The Indians would work up a sweat in the Temescal, scrape it off with clamshells, and then cool off by plunging into the waters of the lagoon. Before this kernel of settlement was planted, every European in the peninsula lived in either the Mission or the Presidio, but it wouldn't be long before more and more people began to drift in and the town began to take shape. It's not clear in every case who arrived exactly when, but a steady trickle of settlers, opportunists, sailors jumping ship, fortune seekers, and refugees from other abandoned colonies began to flow through the town, some just passing through, but some putting down roots. Lots at that time were granted by the alcalde, the Mexican mayor of the district, for $25 and measured 100 vara. A vara is a Spanish unit of measure just less than a yard, and a hundred vara translates to 275-foot lot. We may be sliding into too much information territory here, but I believe that even though the city has been surveyed and resurveyed since, the grid of the downtown area is still based on those early Spanish vara measurements. In 1837, the Swiss captain Jean-Jacques Vioget arrived. Vioget was quite a guy, violin player, engineer, grocer, surveyor, and sea captain, as well as being an accomplished artist. In fact, he's credited with having created the first painting of Yerba Buena, which is now up on the SparkleTech website for your enjoyment. John Marsh arrived in the same year with a motley resume, Minnesota schoolmaster, Indian agent, in fact was under indictment from the feds for selling arms to the Indians, and having graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from Harvard, was able to convince the Mexican authorities that it was a medical degree, but only because no one could read the Latin on the diploma. There's no record that he actually killed anyone, but he was reputed to charge so much for his services that they may have wished for the grave. 25 cows for a professional visit, 50 if he had to remain overnight. It's reported that when he was practicing down towards Los Angeles, one outraged housewife deducted 25 cows from his bill for washing a couple of his shirts. 
He moved in with Jacob Lees until he was able to be baptized Catholic and made a citizen in order to legally buy land at the eastern base of Mount Diablo, a rancho which he felt would be the foundation of his own empire. After the partnership between Lees, Hinckley, and Nathan Spear broke up in 1838, the Bostonian Spear moved up from Monterey to establish his own business in Yerba Buena. He bought a ship's cabin and planted it right at the water's edge, down near what is now the northeast corner of Clay and Montgomery Streets. At that time, Mexican law forbade foreigners from building within 200 vara of the shore of a seaport, I believe in order to prevent smuggling and the avoidance of paying customs duties. Nathan Spear had a special friendship with Governor Alvarado, though, and he granted him special permission to occupy the place. Still, he had no legal title. When a friend of Spears decided to become a Mexican citizen, he had him apply for a legal grant, and then in turn deed the property directly to Spear, which, although a little sketchy, apparently did the trick. This soon became a favored method of acquiring waterfront property, and Jacob Lease also applied for it and received permission from Alvarado to erect his own new and larger building closer to the waterfront, as did John Fuller and John Viogier. Governor Alvarado, I think, realizing the benefits of encouraging settlement and commerce, soon ordered Francisco de Haro, alcalde of the District of San Francisco, to lift this zoning restriction and allow housing lots to be sold right up to the water's edge, which encouraged not only further settlement, but a marked increase in the avoidance of customs duty payments, it being more or less child's play to sail into San Francisco Bay and offload a substantial portion of cargo before sailing down to Monterey for an official cargo tally. Spears' shack, though only about 200 square feet, became known as Kent Hall after the ship which sold it to him. Kent Hall became one of the favorite social gathering places of the town, which had as of yet no hotel or saloon, and there were always strong spirits to drink and plenty to eat. Juan Fuller, an Englishman, presided over the occasional feasts held at Kent Hall, and it was generally recognized that Juan was the Cordon Bleu of California. Juan, whose given name was John, was Yerba Buena's jack-of-all-trades, functioning as the town's butcher, laundryman, and cook, not to mention the town treasurer. He's on record as the first man to spend the community's money on street improvement, $10 for clipping off low-hanging tree limbs on the trail to the mission. He arrived in 1823 and purchased his 100 varlot lot in 37. His wash house and butcher's gallows were located at the foot of what would become Clay Street, not far from the freshwater lagoon and the small wharf. Later in 38, Captain Viogier decides to come in from the sea and found a saloon, an idea that Yerba Buena greets with great enthusiasm. The Viogier house competed with Lisa's grocery and dry goods store and Kent Hall to be the center of the town's social and business life for many years, an excellent place for public gathering, entertainment, and the consumption of whiskey and aguardiente, a fiery mixture of rum and mezcal, perfect for washing down the early diet of tortillas, frijoles, chili con carne, and salt fish, no doubt heavily seasoned with sand from the wind-blown streets. There was a billiard table and a bar, and blackjack, whist, and gossip were Yerba Buena's early games of choice. Later that year, Yerba Buena suffers its first major earthquake, of which Nathan Spear reports that Telegraph Hill shook as though it would fall right over. The mission suffered no damage, but some adobe buildings in the Presidio were cracked. 
A large sand hill collapsed near the shore at Rincon Point, blocking foot passage and forcing people to wade through loose sand, a laborious task and apparently quite irritating to Mr. Spear. In 1839, Governor Alvarado directed Alcalde de Haro to make a survey of Yerba Buena and draw up some streets. Vioje was the only man in town with surveying equipment, so by default he became the man for the job. Apparently familiar with this Spanish Pueblo model, Vioje drew six rudimentary blocks around a town square, the potato patch at which Richardson had built his original adobe. At the same time, he got rid of Richardson's original main street, the Calle de la Fundación, rotating the grid several degrees clockwise to accommodate the two already existing groups of buildings, a string of half a dozen one-story adobes along what is now Grant, and a cluster of wood frame buildings on the shoreline at what is now Clay Street between Montgomery and Kearney. He apparently wasn't much of a surveyor, though, because what he had intended, I guess, as square blocks, turned out to be more like parallelograms off from square by almost three degrees. The town's only official map, inscribed with the names of lot holders, was hung behind the bar of his plaza saloon, and applicants for new lots were obliged to speak to the bartender about scrawling their names in place. Vioche was condemned for this grid idea 30 years later in a magazine screed written by one M.G. Upland in somewhat bitter but amusing terms, and though this piece of urban critique is really directed at future surveyors such as O'Farrell and Ellis who extended and corrected Vioche's plan, his point about the absurdity of laying out a starkly gridded city in a place where such hilly geography is well taken. He drew off the future metropolis of the Pacific with the greatest ease and the most remarkable celerity. The paper upon which he sketched his plan was level and presented no impediment to the easy transit of the pencil. Over hill and dale he remorselessly projected his right lines. To the serene Gallic mind it made but very little difference that some of the streets which he had laid out followed the lines of a dromedary's back or that others described semicircles, some up, some down, up Telegraph Hill from the eastern front of the bay, up a grade which a goat could not travel, then down on the other side, then up Russian Hill, and then down, sloping toward the Presidio. And this crossed with equally rigid lines, leaving grades for the description of which pen and ink are totally inadequate. He had before him the most beautiful and picturesque site for a city that could anywhere on the face of the earth be found, a cove entirely sheltered from norther or southwester, with a lofty eminence on either side and a high longitudinal ridge in the background. What if he had terraced these hills and applied the rule and square only to the space lying between them? He little knew when he was at work in his adobe office with his compasses and rulers that every line he drew would entail a useless expenditure of millions upon those who were to come after him, and that he was then, in fact, squandering money at a rate that would have made a Monte Cristo turn pale. So the next time you break into a cursing sweat as you scale one of our nearly sheer cliffs that serve as our roadways, take comfort in the fact that you've been in good company for over a hundred years. Later in 1839, Captain John Augustus Sutter, a Swiss, sailed into the harbor with four or five Swiss-German followers, ten Kanaka Hawaiians, an Indian boy, and a bulldog, determined to travel up into the then mostly unexplored Sacramento Valley and build an empire there. As you may have noticed, this was a common ambition in those days, and Sutter went a long way towards pulling it off. 
A small fleet composed of a couple of schooners and a four-oared boat sailed up the Sacramento River, armed with rifles and two brass cannon to defend against Indians, who were already becoming quite, uh, shall we say, irritated with these European incursions. Sutter planned to establish a large Swiss colony and empire, actually, in the neighborhood of what was to become Sacramento. He built a large, well-defended fort on the site and named his settlement New Helvetia. Those of you already loosely familiar with early California history will have perked up upon hearing Sutter's name for his spectacular rise and fall and association with the discovery of that ubiquitous shiny metal that will be discovered in a couple of years is a fascinating one. But Sutter's whole story will have to come later. Many of these personalities are so interesting that it's not easy just to sum them up in a sentence or two, and I'm trying very hard not to digress too much, so be consoled with the fact that I'll certainly come back to some of these folks in later shows. Please drop me a line if any of them especially pique your interest. In 1840, an order was given by Alvarado that all Americans in the state should be arrested due to the rumor that the Americans were planning to rise up, assassinate the California government, and seize control of the territory. About 70 people were arrested, and Yerba Buena was temporarily placed under martial law. It's interesting to note that, though the Mexican government was deeply suspicious of the United States, the Californios, at least according to William Davis, often expressed the hope that at some time the Stars and Stripes would float over California, that they would feel better protected and more secure in life and property than under the Mexican government in its constant unsettling state of revolution. The arrested Americans were well treated and shortly released with Davis, the nephew of the also arrested Nathan Spear, describing his own 24-hour arrest as a delightful time in which he was entertained by the daughter of the alcalde and half a dozen other young ladies and gentlemen at a dancing party the affair being so enjoyable that he hardly realized that he was a prisoner of state. That episode blew over with minimal repercussions, at least so far as Yerba Buena was concerned, and life continued on more or less as normal. In the same year, Nathan Spear had a two-story frame building for a mule-power gristmill built between Kent Hall and his store, uh, between Montgomery and Kearney Streets. He did a great business carrying grain and flour from it up and down the coast in his fleet of ships. An old mountaineer and blacksmith named Daniel Sill built the mill for him and ran the place when he wasn't working at his own smithy on the corner of Kearney and Washington. Sill had a reputation for being a crack shot. William Heath Davis, author of the amazing reminiscence 75 Years in California, writes that old Dan would often take him deer hunting, saying, Now, William, go for the yellow horse, the deer horse, and we'll go out and shoot a buck. They'd ride over to the oak and willow-covered sides of Rincon Hill, about where the Bay Bridge Terminal is now, never failing to come back with the horse loaded with venison. John Cooper, alias Jack the Sailor, Jack the Soldier, also, and why don't we have nicknames like that anymore, opened a groggery later that year in a shack built on DuPont, now Grant Street. He was another jack-of-all-trades and pretty much worked at whatever he could find, from making ships sails to whatever was needed around town. By this time, tradesmen of all sorts were gradually beginning to fill the place up. Blacksmiths, tinkers, shoemakers, bakers, and so on. Here, Babuena was becoming a proper town. 
1841, the Hudson Bay Company, a wealthy British fur trading corporation well established throughout the north of the continent, sent a contingent down from Fort Vancouver seeking permission to establish a trading post with the avowed purpose of seizing the entire California business of barter. Jacob Lease had left to join his brother-in-law Vallejo up in Sonoma, and they purchased his old property, which was bounded by Sacramento, Clay, Kearney, and the waterfront. In their normal way, the company collected tallow and otter and beaver hides from trappers and hunters around the bay and shipped them back to England in exchange for goods to be sold in their general store. William Ray was a Scotsman who kept that store, a large friendly man who was widely known for his love of whiskey and generous nature, often simply giving gifts of items from the store to people who needed them and could not pay. As there were no hotels in town, he, along with Nathan Spear, uh, was one of the town's chief entertainers, and ship's captains and other strangers passing through the settlement were always welcome at his home and table. He made no secret of his antipathy to the American presence, though, saying, It cost the Hudson Bay Company 75,000 pounds to drive the Yankee traders from the Columbia River, and that they would drive them from California if it cost a million. He ran the Hudson Bay Post until 1845, when it was discovered that he'd put a bullet in his head, possibly due to the failure of one of the Mexican political factions that he'd supported with Hudson Bay funds, possibly because he'd been unfaithful to his wife with a beautiful Spanish woman, or possibly because he was a hopeless drunk, hard to say. Anyway, shortly thereafter, the post was dissolved and the property sold to two Boston men who had grown up in the hide and tallow business in California, Henry Mellis and William Howard, who soon became the most important merchants in town. Mellis, incidentally, had arrived in Yerba Buena on the same ship as Richard Henry Danis several years before. The Cockney sailor Robert Ridley, who had already worked for Sutter and for Spear, rented the Viaget house and ran the saloon as well as working as William Ray's clerk. He was truly the early drinking champion of Yerba Buena and a self-styled ladies' man, though he soon married one of Juana Briona's daughters and became a Mexican citizen. Can't say he entirely straightened up, though, because one fine morning he ran into Kanaka William Davis and asked him how many London docks he'd had before breakfast. Davis guessed uh, about a dozen of the stiff rum beverages, to which Ridley proudly responded, Why, I've gotten away with 23, and I think I'll take another before I eat just to whet my appetite. Davis reports that at the time he appeared to be cold and sober. As we're on the subject of ingestion, a Russian by the name of Andres Hepner, a music teacher to General Vallejo's daughter and an enthusiastic patron of Vioche's saloon, discovered one afternoon that his host had a reputation for being a great eater and formally challenged the man to a duel. Invitations were printed and sent out, and on the appointed day the two met and began to consume plate after plate of pancakes, beefsteak, Spanish stew, carne asado, refried beans, dozens of tamales, an immense pudding, and a large quantity of fruit pies, finishing up with black coffee. It was an excellent battle, but Vioget didn't make it through the pie course. To the astonishment of all concerned, though, as an eyewitness put it, after concluding their repast, the two got up, moved around, drank a little wine, played billiards, and appeared to suffer no inconvenience for the meal each had consumed. <laughs> Fun on the frontier. Another, perhaps more notable occurrence of 1841 was the appearance of William Alexander Leidesdorf on the scene. Though blacks from around the Caribbean, Africa, and the U.S. had been invited to settle in the Mexican Republic, 
Few accepted the offer, and most of those who did moved into the backcountry, where they unsurprisingly felt a little bit safer. With the fair-skinned Leidesdorf, son of a Danish sailor and a West Indian woman, it was a different story. He came to California in 1841 as master of a schooner, loaded with cash from his expert trading throughout the Western Hemisphere. He quickly bought up several lots and established himself in the center of town affairs, eventually holding many offices such as captain of the port, treasurer, etc. He bartered dry goods for hides at first, then expanded into real estate, building a large adobe that served as house and store, acquiring a large warehouse and wharf at the corner of what's now California and the appropriately named Leidesdorf Street. He bought the first steamer that ever sailed on the Bay of San Francisco, with which people could be ferried around the bay and up the Sacramento River. He purchased a large adobe home from Robert Ridley at the corner of Montgomery in California and forged it into the new social center of town with a gorgeous garden and frequent parties. Though becoming a naturalized Mexican citizen and being granted 35,000 acres of land along the American River, he would be appointed U.S. Vice Consul and was a passionate supporter of the American cause. And though I honestly originally intended to wrap your babuena up in this show, there's frankly no way that's going to happen. We've sort of staggered from 1835 through right around 1841, and I can only hope that your burning curiosity about the next five years will have you racing to your computer in a week to listen to the next one, which will feature an alluring cast of characters including goats, bears, and Mormons. Who could resist? Thanks go out again to Ryo Sode for the gorgeous music, a track called Yosemite, provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check them out at music.podshow.com. I do have a little correction to make, which is a little bit embarrassing, but in the Carville episode from a few weeks ago, apparently I said I made a Cardinal San Francisco error in which I referred to 20th Avenue as 20th Street. Huh, my goodness. As everyone knows, the streets are uh, on one side of town, and the avenues are on the other, and uh, one could be hung, tarred and feathered, and ridden out of town on a rail for such an error, so I deeply apologize. As always, you can pick nits by contacting me at sparkletech at gmail.com or uh, leaving a message at www.sparkletech.com, on which there are, as usual, photographs and maps and other goodies to, uh, to take a look at. I appreciate your kind attention and your continued interest in these obscure historical wanderings, and thank you so much for listening. Till next time. <laughs>